So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. Amen. Father, we do thank you for this scripture. Every word of scripture uh, has been given for our edification, and uh, we pray that you would help us to understand it and to apply it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me be seated. Well, last week we began applying some of the discouraging signs of tyranny in ancient Israel to some of the things that are going on in America today. But I wanted to begin my sermon by saying, not everything in America is discouraging. Uh, God has been raising up ministries, very strategic ministries, all over the states that are trying to call this nation back to Him. And I'm encouraged by this. It's almost as if God is preparing the way to do something great. I certainly pray and hope that that is the case. Uh, another encouraging sign that I see is uh, a nationwide call to prayer and fasting. Uh, Governors Rick Perry of Texas and Sam Brownback of Kansas have uh, called uh, their states to prayer, fasting, and repentance on August 6th. That's a Saturday, and the elders are encouraging all of us to join in on that. American Family Association's kind of organizing this, and there's other governors that are thinking of getting on board. Uh, um, uh, Louisiana, uh, Bobby uh, uh, Jindal, what's his first name? Is it Bobby? Yep, and... Um, uh, the Mississippi uh, governor, uh, Haley, I think it is, Haley Barber, yeah. Uh, anyway, they're all saying, they're thinking of calling their states, and it looks like there's a whole bunch of other uh, states that might be getting on board. So to me, this is uh, very, very encouraging. On their website, theresponseusa.com, they said this, We believe that America is in a state of crisis, not just politically, financially, or morally, 
but because we are a nation that has not honored God in our successes or humbly called on Him in our struggles. According to the Bible, the answer to a nation in such crisis is to gather in humility and repentance and ask God to intervene. The response will be a historic gathering of people from across the nation to pray and fast for America. And uh, in part of uh, Governor Perry's letter, also on that website, he said, Some problems are beyond our power to solve, and according to the book of Joel, chapter 2, this historic hour demands a historic response. Therefore, on August 6, thousands will gather to pray for a historic breakthrough for our country and a renewed sense of moral purpose. I sincerely hope you'll join me in Houston on August 6th and take your place in Reliant Stadium with praying people asking God's forgiveness, wisdom, and provision for our state and nation. There is hope for America. It lies in heaven, and we will find it on our knees. Well, I'm encouraged, very encouraged by that. Whatever motives you might impute to people doing this kind of thing. Hey, this is government officials calling our nation to prayer, to repentance, to fasting on August uh, 6. And to me, it's just a little glimmer of the hope that we need, uh, of what is needed for our nation. And we can be praying that God would fan this spark into full-orbed reformation uh, across the church. He's able to do that. Uh, anyway, last week we began comparing 12 signs of tyranny in the nation of Israel with the same 12 signs in America. And let me give you a quick review. First, constitutional patriots like David were beginning to be treated like the enemy, and non-constitutional people like Doeg the Edomite were being honored. Second, the security of the administration was uppermost in Saul's mind, not the security of the people. Third, cronyism was becoming rampant. Fourth, property was seen as a granted privilege of the state. Now, if you weren't here last week, you might be surprised with my conclusion that America has become feudal in its uh, perspective on our relationship to property. Fifth, patriotism was redefined as loyalty to a man. Now, that could be a scary thing. The language of civics was getting redefined and was being misused to manipulate people. Seventh, spying on citizens was becoming common. Eighth, failure to get on board with the administration's aims was viewed ominously. Ninth, the issue of servant leadership was getting inverted with everybody being seen as a servant of the state rather than seeing the state as a servant of the people. Tenth, Machiavellian manipulation had replaced statesmanship. Eleventh, decisions were weighed by political advancement. And twelfth, everything was becoming subservient to the state. And we saw that those 12 signs very accurately re uh, reflect uh, the, the, the sad state of affairs, not just in America, but in countries all over the world. Now, this is not just a unique thing uh, to America. And today we, we begin where we left off, and I'm going to begin by reading uh, verse 11. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. Now, the thing to notice here is that Doeg, who was the informer, he had only seen Ahimelech aiding David, and yet Saul is rounding up all of the priests who are in any way associated uh, with Ahimelech. It's bad enough that Ahimelech is being charged with criminal conduct. It's just uh, scandalous that he's um, putting all of these male priests in the same way. It is a pure case of guilt 
by association. Guilt by association. Now, of course, this is a much easier way for bureaucracies uh, to, uh, to work. This was par for the course in the Soviet Union and China and other massive bureaucracies because it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of time to try each person individually and prove their guilt. Much easier to round up whole groups of people. And so in terms of centralization, uh, this is... This is par for the course. And the more bureaucratic America has become, the more of this kind of action uh, we have begun to see. I'll just give you one example. This was an example recently brought to my attention by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And uh, this, this related uh, to Howard Solomon, who worked for Forest Laboratories. Now, apparently, Forest Laboratories had been charged with... Um, uh, illegal marketing and distribution of their products and they had already been fighting this for years and rather than continue years of fighting and years of spending more money they've just went ahead and settled they decided they would they would just go ahead and pay it's uh, less costly to pay than it is to uh, to continue to fight it now i'm not going to get into whether or not they were guilty of the things that they were charged of if they had indeed engaged in in misconduct that's a totally different point what the Chamber of Commerce is very, very concerned about, and many other organizations as well, is that the Office of Inspector General has declared its intention to bar Solomon and any other representatives from Forest Laboratories from ever working with any organization that gets government funds, that's part of a government program like Medicare, which pretty much rules out anything. And that's not just if he stays in Forest Laboratories, it's if he goes to any other uh, company as well. And this even if that individual has been proved to not know what was going on, to not be guilty himself. And they made this retroactive to all other healthcare companies that in the past have been charged with or have been uh, found guilty of misconduct. And you can sort of understand uh, why they have done this because corporations do indeed shield the guilty, don't they? Uh, the company gets punished. And the guy who, who, who did the bad things, he gets a great big uh, parachute reward, you know, as he leaves the company. And, and so what they're trying to do is they're going for blood. They say, we can't just punish the corporation. They just pass the costs on to their customer. We want individuals to suffer here. And uh, we want to be able to show tough justice. Now, here's the problem. You can sort of understand why they're doing it, but the problem is Mr. Solomon has never been shown to be guilty. And uh, the uh, case is purely a case of guilt by association. And this is becoming uh, just part of business as usual with the massive federal bureaucracies. One journal in analyzing this case said this, Mr. Solomon appeared to be an easy target. He's 83 and looked likely to retire soon anyway, but he plans to fight back ferociously. The health department's actions may change the culture in drug firms and not for the better. The Forrest case suggests that any executive could be punished for anything that occurs in a sprawling multinational company. A terrifying prospect, explains Paul Kolb, a lawyer at Sidley Austin, who has defended pharmaceutical companies. Mr. Solomon's punishment is intended to deter corporate misconduct. It may simply deter clever people from becoming drug executives. Now, I've included this in my analysis of our nation because these are the types of things that are symptomatic of more and more centralization. 
the less local political decisions become, the easier it is to say we can't deal with individuals. We've got to deal uh, with groups and with massive uh, centralization that we've been seeing in Washington. We've already been seeing exactly the same kind of stuff in other uh, federal agencies, OSHA, FEMA, and you can, you can look at others as well. This is one of the reasons we should hate socialism, one of the reasons we should hate centralization, and why we need to be praying for our nation. Okay, the second thing that we see, at least today, this is point number 14, is that Saul used an unjust precedent in the life of David to condemn Ahimelech. Let's read that. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? Now, David was falsely charged with trying to assassinate uh, Saul, and since it was a foregone conclusion in his mind that this had gone on, anybody who so much as gave bread or gave a prayer, you know, on this guy's behalf is considered guilty. And thus, an unjust precedent of condemning David becomes the basis for an unjust condemnation of Ahimelech and everybody who's with him. Now, you may question whether this is true in America. It's certainly true in a lot of underdeveloped uh, countries. I think uh, you could probably give another number of illustrations there. But think of Roe v. Wade. Here is an unjust precedent that has been used to kill millions of babies in our nation. Um, Anyway, um, uh, it used to be that Court cases only were binding on the parties of that court case. What's happening anymore is they're binding on everybody, which means it's legislation from the bench. And so it's just a, it's just a wrong way. But anyway, unjust precedence. Moving on to point 15, we see that an entire population was condemned based on one man's trial. Uh, in verse 12, Saul only addresses Ahimelech, only allows Ahimelech to talk. Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub, And he answered, Here I am, my Lord. But what's the condemnation in verse 16? The king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Now, no one else is allowed to distance themselves from Ahimelech and say, Hey, we didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, You know, plead their own guilt or say, We don't agree with Ahimelech. They weren't allowed the opportunity to do that. Uh, All those associated with him were condemned. And sometimes this is an easy thing to occur during times of war. It definitely occurred in America with regard to the Japanese. Sometimes even second-generation citizens in America uh, had their properties confiscated, were put in prison camps. Our treatment of Indians uh, could be described as fitting into that category, but Roe v. Wade definitely is. Here is a whole population, the unborn, that's endangered because of one one court case uh, situation. And again, uh, legislating from the bench. Point 16. Saul treats the possession of a weapon as treason. Now, because I dealt with this in detail last week, I won't say as much on it this time, but you can kind of see Saul's outrage in those words. In that you have given him bread and a sword. Now, why would it be so outrageous to sell, trade, to give away, uh, to barter, you know, a weapon? I mean, it used to be an inalienable right to do this in America, uh, but that has definitely been infringed. Scripture demonstrates that any time there are tyrants, 
citizens began to be disarmed, anytime there were good kings, they were immediately rearmed. Let me give you just some examples. Judges 5, verse 8, says that under the tyranny of Jabin, quote, not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. And so uh, when a tyrant like that is overthrown, what's the first thing that a good king or a good judge does? He rearms the people as one of the first liberties to be restored. And then a tyrant comes along and disarms all of the people. So 1 Samuel 13, 19 through 22, it says that the Philistines had completely disarmed the whole population, wouldn't even allow a blacksmith uh, to uh, be present in Israel lest they get arms. Saul comes along and under Samuel's influence, he immediately rearms the people. 33 years later, though, and sometime in between, it, it becomes evident that Saul has disarmed the population, wouldn't even allow his own soldiers uh, to uh, carry their weapons when they were off duty. And the sad thing is that many believers at the time of Saul just let him get away with this, just like Christians today are allowing their liberties to keep getting infringed, infringed without saying anything about it. Weapon control has never made citizens safer, never. Weapon control guarantees that good people alone won't have weapons. All such confiscation of weapons should be considered against the laws of God. Far from being treason in the citizenry, I would say it is treason in a lawmaker or in an administrator to take away those weapons because he has vowed to uphold the Constitution and he is running roughshod uh, over it. And so... These may seem like overly strong words uh, to, to you, but just go back and study what God said about Saul, God's opinion of Saul, and I think you, you'll change your tune. Even Jesus, we saw before, uh, he said, he, he, he ignored Rome's uh, weapon control. He commanded his disciples to get weapons, and they had to with him to Gethsemane. Now, we're going to be seeing in the future, he wouldn't allow Peter to use it against the state because he's not for revolution. There are... We're going to be looking in the future, Lord wedding, I don't know when, but there are things you may do, things you may not do with those weapons. It's very important that you understand those. Otherwise, we could get off into, into all kinds of, uh, of difficulty. But the, the point here is that uh, weapon control is not treated as a godly thing in Scripture. The next accusation in verse 13, you know that it could even be taken seriously. is just an amazing thing to me. The accusation in court is, and have inquired of God for him. Now, of course, he's taking the whole sentence to be fair to him. It's the rest of the sentence that he thinks is the, the crime. And have inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. But my point is, if it was really God's revelation that he should lie in wait, which it wasn't, but if it was God's revelation, why is Saul opposing it? Isn't he claiming to be the king of a Christian nation? Why is, he, why is he resisting this exercise of religion? Well, for Saul, religion was free so long as it did not contradict him. The moment God's revelation was used to undermine his wishes, he was going to restrict that religious expression. He did it with Samuel, he did it with David, now he's doing it with Ahimelech. And by doing that, he was overstepping state jurisdiction and going into the territory of the church. And this is exactly what Senator Lyndon B. Johnson did back in 1994 when he added churches to the 501c3 section of the tax code. This crafty enemy of the church withdrew the protection of Article 1 of the 
Bill of Rights with one stroke of the pen. Um, he, um, prior to that, uh, churches could apply the scriptures to every area of life, but they started saying, we better not do that after this, lest they lose their tax exemption, they start to be taxed, or even worse, might happen to them. Now, prior to that, they really were tax immune already, not tax exempt, they were tax immune based on Article 1 of the Bill of Rights. And the IRS, even to this day, says that that's the case. But when they started voluntarily applying to the IRS for a determination of whether they were tax-exempt or not and applied for 501c3 status, what they were doing is they were asking for a license which gave them tax exemption so long as they did not preach on anything that was political. Now, I've gone through the tax code with our church's... um, attorney who's worked high on the IRS, and he says he, he just doesn't understand why any church would ever apply. He, says, he thinks it's ridiculous. He doesn't understand why they would get incorporated. But anyway, the Alliance Defense Fund is seeking to challenge this horrendous invasion of the jurisdiction of the church. And let me read you what they say on their website. The Internal Revenue Service, in conjunction with radical organizations like Americans United for Separation of Church and State, have used the Johnson Amendment to create an atmosphere of intimidation and fear for any church that dares to speak scriptural truth about candidates for office or issues. It is time for the intimidation and threats to end. Churches and pastors have a constitutional right to speak freely and truthfully from the pulpit, even on candidates and voting, without fearing loss of their tax exemption. That's the opinion of the Alliance Defense Fund. Now, even though the threat to churches is much less today than it was under Saul, the effect is exactly the same. When churches, when pastors submit to a King Saul on this issue, what happens is they begin to become unfaithful to God's calling. They stop preaching the whole counsel of God. They stop bearing a prophetic testimony against a culture like uh, Jeremiah and Amos and so many others did. They stop inquiring of God for a David because there's just too much risk to do so. The Alliance Defense Fund, by the way, if you aren't familiar with them, it's almost like the Christian equivalent to the ACLU. And what they're saying is, Churches should preach what the Bible calls them to preach and not worry about it. And we'll come to your defense and we'll make a test case out of this. And it's interesting. There are some people who have been in their faith. They sent their sermons to the IRS and say, go ahead and charge me. Because they're trying to bring this and cast it out. And it is unconstitutional, clearly so. And so they want to make a test case uh, to overturn uh, this uh, very, very bad precedent. By the way, pray for the Alliance Defense Fund. They're an excellent organization. They were started by uh, D. James Kennedy, Dobson, Larry Burkett. There's about 35 ministries that banded together and say, enough is enough. You know, we really got to do something about this. We cannot be silent like pastors were under Hitler's Germany. We've got to stand against this. But... Now we get into a very important part of what made Israel tyrannical under Saul, what is making America increasingly tyrannical. In your outlines, I give 10 violations of biblical rules of court jurisprudence that occur in these verses. First violation is that there was no evidence that this was a public trial. Okay, the only people present are Saul's officers. And you might think, well, so what? What's the big deal with that? Well, the big deal is that secret trials feed the monster of tyranny. Over and over again in the Scripture, God insisted trials had to be in public. They had to be in the gates of the city. Why? 
Because God did not want, you know, things going on, tyranny going on behind closed doors. He wanted the citizens to be present at trials. He wanted the citizens to be present at executions so that they would be outraged if there was injustice that was going on. And um, Steve has been trying to encourage people to go to... uh, <laughs> you know, various court cases to, 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 to look. What is going on? Is there injustice? Are there unconstitutional things that are happening? If, if, if all of these things are off the radar from the citizens, citizens can't get outraged and there's not going to be any fear factor uh, for the government. Anytime this principle is violated, you're well on your way toward gross tyranny. Now, in your outlines, I call it a star chamber type of a trial. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Star Chamber was the king's court in England, and it became notorious uh, during the Stuarts, the reign of the Stuarts in the 17th century. There were secret trials, no right of appeal. There were people who were taken away from America, tried there secretly, never returned. And any time you would talk about Star Chamber being aroused in America, it would have been incredibly offensive to people. They would not tolerate this. This was something that they absolutely despised. But starting with President Bush's Patriot Act, and then Patriot Act II, and on through to the present, we have a resurrected star chamber. American citizens can be arrested and held in secret indefinitely without even being charged. They just have to be suspected of being involved in terrorism. Really, this is a war, not on terrorism. This is a war on our Constitution. It is a war on American citizens. This is a war on biblical liberties. And uh, there are some aspects of the Patriot Act I can understand, okay? But I think it's gone way too far. And for those of you who disagree, I want you to at least consider the evidence. Consider the following points made by Paul Craig Roberts. And in case you think he's a nutcase, let me give you a little bit of background. And I can also give you some other... Um, uh, reviews by the Rutherford Institute, Cato Institute, other uh, great organizations. But let me give you some background on Paul Craig Roberts. He is a former editor of the Wall Street Journal, a, journal, uh, a former assistant secretary to the U.S. Treasury, a fellow at the Institute for Political Economy, a research fellow at the Independent Institute, and numerous local governments bought into his analysis of the Patriot Act and they resisted it initially. Um, well, they continue to as well. But with solemn mind, listen to what Paul Craig Roberts says. The Patriot Act defines terrorism so broadly that any act of protest or civil disobedience can be construed, construed as terrorism, a charge for which the government can hold a person indefinitely. Thus, the Patriot Act permits punishment without conviction. If you think you still live in a free society, consider the Patriot Act overturns the attorney-client privilege, and attorneys who aggressively defend their clients can be indicted for aiding and abetting terrorism. By the way, that happened shortly after he wrote that, uh, the the situation of Lynn Stewart Case, who was the court-appointed attorney. Okay, It's not like she's some attorney hired by them. Court-appointed attorney. She was wiretapped. And because of her aggressive defense of the uh, terrorist that was assigned uh, to her, quote-unquote, she was imprisoned. Uh, It's an amazing thing. You just need to study some of this, this, this kind of stuff. Anyway, the article goes on. Internet service providers who moved to quash 
uh, government surveillance of their customers can be charged with obstructing justice. Well, that proved to be prophetic as well. Exactly that happened. He goes on. Parents who object to airport security personnel dragging away a frightened child to be searched can be arrested for, quote, obstructing a federal law enforcement officer. According to Cassell, regulations have been issued that permit federal prosecutors to override federal judges, a gross breach of the separation of powers and a classic tool of 20th century police states. Indeed, Cassell herself might be subject to arrest, quote, for aiding and abetting terrorists, unquote. Here is what Ashcroft told the Senate Judiciary Committee. To those who scare peace-loving people with phantoms of lost liberty, my message is this. Your tactics only aid terrorists, for they erode our national unity and diminish our resolve. So you just put those two quotes together, you can see why he logically says that, that, could, that, that she could be arrested. He goes on, Castle dryly notes that September 11 was caused by intelligence failures not by civil liberties, yet the government's response was to attack civil liberties. All of the police state measures were waiting on the shelf. September 11 was an excuse to grab unconstitutional power, just as the Reichstag fire was for Hitler. Cassell says the, the fate of our free society rests with the judiciary. In her chapter, The War in the Courts, she assesses whether courts are up to the challenge. Some are, some are not. Ironically, it is the conservative Republican judges who go along with the police state measures. So much for the old saw that we need a Republican president to save us from liberal judges. At the time Cassell's book went to press, the Supreme Court had yet to rule whether the government can indefinitely hold a person without charging him and bringing him to trial. After the Padilla and Hamdi cases, Cassell concludes that the court did not consent to being read out of the picture, but did nothing effective to defend civil liberties. Where do matters stand? If the government declares you an enemy combatant or a material witness, you have no rights. The government can hold you forever without charges or until you admit to some offense in order to escape from isolation and from psychological, perhaps physical torture. I would rather take my chances with terrorists. In a chapter on grassroots resistance, Cassell notes that more than 250 counties and municipalities in 28 states, plus two entire states, representing 43 million Americans, have passed resolutions criticizing the Patriot Act or forbidding local law enforcement from cooperating with the Bush administration's attack on the U.S. Constitution. Now, that was the first Patriot Act. A number of legal scholars have written on this and believe that it violated the first, third, Fourth, Fifth, Seventh, and Tenth Amendments. Patriot Act II was worse, far worse. And I would encourage anybody that has even the remotest inclination to trust the government on this one to actually read the full text of the Patriot Act I, Patriot Act II, and the third revised edition. I've got copies of all three of the full text. I've got full copies as well of the analysis of those texts by the Rutherford Institute, Cato Institute, other organizations that have given warning after warning. Conservatives have ignored the warning. Liberals have ignored the warning. I mean, we're, we're talking here about serious violations of the Constitution. You can look at the candidates who are running for president right now. I mean, good people in many ways. People, I think, wow, that would be a person. I love the things that they stand, and yet they support the Patriot Act. It's, it's just appalling to me. And from my reading of those acts, I can assure you that they represent King Saul on steroids. 
Okay? If God was upset with Saul, he is even more upset with the Patriot Act. Now, the next egregious violation of jurisprudence was that Saul's kangaroo court proceeded with only one witness. That was illegal. Back in Israel, that was illegal. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth, notice it's a literal mouth, of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Now do a fun study sometime, and I want you to just try to look up the statistics of how many people are currently serving time in prison based on one witness, or you can make the study easier, just based on no witnesses, just circumstantial evidence. And I think you're going to be very, very surprised. It's one of the reasons why America has more people in prison per capita than any country in the world by far. There isn't any country that's even close to the number of people per capita that America has in prison. Now, it's not just the courts. Think about child protection services. You don't even need a witness with them. Based on an anonymous tip, they can come into your home, take away your children. Think of OSHA. OSHA routinely does investigations of businesses based on anonymous tips, and after putting them through the ringer and uh, spending all kinds of time, the businesses never remunerated any money or, you know, their time lost. I mean, it's out the window even after they, oh, okay, it's a false alarm. But they don't get remunerated for that. And other agencies uh, have uh, done the same. A farmer friend of mine back in the 80s in Iowa lost a good chunk of his land based on an anonymous tip from a neighbor. Um, and he, he suspects he knows which neighbor it is that, that did this. But uh, the neighbor called in after uh, a period of heavy rain and said, oh, yeah, this guy's got wetlands. They came in, and sure enough, there's water on the ground, and uh, they confiscated a good chunk of his land. Uh, a couple of you might even know who this uh, farmer is. And yet, this land has been farmed for, by him for quite some time. No recourse, no way that they can get that land back. Uh, federal agencies have been notorious for violating many of the principles that we're looking at here today. And this is one of the reasons why I agree with these governors of Kansas and Texas. We need to call our nation to repentance, to fasting, to prayer. Uh, we, we're living in a time uh, of really uh, a desperate state of affairs. And let me tell you something. Conservative candidates are not going to help. They are part of the problem. Conservatives are part of the problem. I am sick to death of conservatives saying, oh, yeah, I'm a conservative. You need to vote for me when they're violating the Constitution. What I want to see is people coming back to God and back to the Constitution. And people say, it's a secular state. We can't come back to God. I say, well, why don't you take in God we trust after, off of our money? Why don't you take it out of our pledge, one nation under God? Of course we can go back to God. This is the official position uh, 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 of America. It's just that people are ignoring it. Okay, the next violation of court law was that Saul did not seek to corroborate what the witness had said through investigation. Now, the only investigation he does is he goes up to Ahimelech in court and he asks, why did you do it? Assuming already that he did do it. And of course, Ahimelech denies the guilt, which is where the court case should have started. Okay, I plead not guilty. Okay, let's have a court case. No, that's the end of the court case for Saul. He says, why did you do it? There's no pretense made at trying to corroborate the story of Doeg. 
And points B, sub points B and C are critical if we are to avoid injustices from occurring. Now, sometimes people get really upset when bad people get off the hook when everybody believes that they're guilty. I mean, it's happened this past week, right? A lot of people say, of course she's guilty. I mean, it's just obvious on the surface of it that she's guilty, but it's important to realize that the jury let her off the hook because the government had not persuaded them beyond a reasonable doubt anyway that she was guilty. Don't blame the jury if the government did such a lousy job that they couldn't prove her guilt. Okay, those very laws that let some bad people escape are designed to protect the innocent from overreaching hand of tyrants. Sometimes conservatives want to be so tough on crime that they forget about the rigorous corroboration required in the Bible. I've got a 30-page study of 39 cases from Texas, and and they just picked these 39 because they're so clear-cut, so obvious, from Texas of people who have been serving for crimes and then evidence, DNA plus other evidence, came out that resoundingly showed that they were not guilty. Now, here's the sad thing. Those 39 people, when you take all of the years that they've already served, it's almost 500 years lost. That's 12.8 years average for each one of them. Now, I was reading through those case studies, and I realized if the ridiculous requirements of the Bible of having two, or in cases of doubt, having three witnesses were present, not one of these people would have served any time in jail. Okay? So, sure, some people are going to, some criminals are going to get off the hook, and you're going to be mad. Why did that criminal get off the hook? But you should not allow your rage against criminals to deny them of biblical rights, you know, the rights that they have, protections that they have. And we should not allow the threat of terrorism make us take away some rights from those terrorists either. There there are downsides. There are risks to liberty. It's one of the reasons why Israel kept wanting to go back to Egypt, because slavery doesn't have any risk. Your master makes all the decisions for you. It's kind of everything's planned out for you. But brothers and sisters, the Scripture calls us to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Don't allow the risks and the downsides of liberty make you let the government enslave you for your safety and security. There are serious, serious issues that need to be restored to America. The whole judicial system stinks. It needs to be overhauled. Prisons, for one, grossly unbiblical. What the Bible calls for and what we used to have is restitution to the victim. The victim doesn't get help in in these situations. Uh, But really, it's, it's not even so much the courts. It's federal agencies that are the chief culprits for violating laws of jurisprudence and ignoring the Bill of Rights. These are unaccountable agencies that need to be shut down. Uh, This past week, uh, there's a candidate that really wants me to endorse him, and I've been dragging my feet. I sent him to a federal website that has 758 federal agencies and departments of government, and I said, I want you to look at this list of 758, and I want you to tell me which of these is unconstitutional and which of these you are going to do everything in your power to defund, to get rid of, even if it takes 20 years to do. Now, I'll be really impressed if he comes up with a list on on, on these. Actually, there was one that was not on that list. It's the 
um, uh, the agency that was just set up by Obama by executive order uh, to oversee um, rural areas of America. I guess rural areas must be doing terrible, huh? We need more help, more bureaucracy. So that one wasn't on there. Okay. Fourth violation of biblical jurisprudence was that Saul was accusing Ahimelech of things that were not biblical crimes. First, David had not yet been convicted in a court of law as a criminal, and so charging Ahimelech with aiding and abetting a criminal is a charge that can't stick. You cannot treat people as criminals until they've been proven as criminals. Second, there was nothing David had done that could be defined as criminal. Thirdly, giving bread or a weapon to David was not criminal behavior, according to the Bible. So in order to make Ahimelech into a criminal, what has to happen is biblical law has to be ignored and the desires of the state have to become law. Okay, that's what has to happen. And this is the chief crisis that we face in America. Almost every level of government has been ignoring the law of God. And you might think, well, of course, what do you expect as a secular state? It is my contention, and I hope to prove it here, that America has never legally amended the Christian basis for this nation. It never legally uh, amended that. And for those of you who know me for very long, you know I'm talking about uh, Article 7 of the Bill of Rights that uh, mandates common law uh, in all of our courts. Now, I do agree with Justice Scalia, who recently said that common law is dead, and 100% of the courts are ignoring the common law. Now, I agree. That's been the case for quite a, a few years. But they are ignoring it illegally. They are ignoring it illegally. In a speech I've recorded... Uh, that you can listen to if you're interested in. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia said, the common law is gone. The federal courts never applied the common law, and even in the state courts, it's codified now. He was saying, in effect, uh, there's no more legal basis for even appeal, because the people were appealing to common law. So we don't care about common law. That's not even in our courts anymore. Now, my question to him is this. When and how was Article 7 of the Bill of Rights amended? It hasn't been. It's never been removed. It's just been ignored. Let me read you Amendment 7. It says, In suits at common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved. Okay, so far so good. But now comes the significant part that's being ignored. And no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. In fact, a constitutional scholar, uh, I've got a big book on, on the Constitution, uh, James McClellan says the Bill of Rights is simply taken out of common law, and you can't understand the, the Constitution without reference to English common law, minus a few edits, which were very much discussed in America. Here are some things in English common law we're taking out. So it's not English common law, now it's American common law, but the bulk of it continues. Okay, so... Uh, one, the Northwest Ordinance guaranteed that citizens, quote, shall always be entitled to judicial proceedings according to the course of the common law, unquote. Well, what's the common law that's supposed to be the foundation for all of our courts and that Scalia says we just now ignore? It's dead. Well, American common law, minus a few edits, that were clearly discussed in all the American commentaries was a carryover of English common law. 
The great commentator on common law, Sir Edward Koch, said that common law was the application of biblical law to England's cases. He denied that it took anything whatsoever from paganism. In fact, in commenting on the case of Robert Kelvin, he cited 2 Corinthians 6.15 saying, What concord hath Christ with Belial? If a Christian king should conquer a king of an infidel, there ipso facto the laws of the infidel are abrogated. He's saying, you can't appeal to Anglo-Saxons. You can't appeal to any of these other people. We're talking Christian common law here. He went on to say, they be not only against Christianity, but against the law of God and of nature contained in the Decalogue. And by the way, he very clearly defined the law of nature that our Declaration of Independence, which is our first legal document, talks about as being biblical law. The law of nature is exactly the same as the law in the Bible. It's just written on people's hearts. But he said you can appeal to the Bible because it's the objective standard by which we understand natural law. And by the way, um, in 1892, the Supreme Court of the United States of America said common law was in force in every court of the nation back then, contrary to Scalia. It was in force. And more specifically, it says common law not only deals with the applications of biblical law as a whole, but the New Testament, specifically Christianity, is at the basis of common law. Let me read that. It says, Christianity, general Christianity, is and always has been a part of the common law. Not Christianity with an established church, but Christianity with liberty of conscience to all men. Chief Justice Story said, there never has been a period of history in which the common law did not recognize Christianity as lying at its foundation. This is why in September 17, 1796, seven years after he signed the Constitution, President George Washington said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. That was his understanding of common law. Okay? <clears throat> well, now Justice Scalia says it's gone. It's dead. And I say, no, it's not dead. It's still in our Constitution. It's never been amended. And these judges have sworn to uphold it. Now, making common law... The law governing all state and federal courts made God's law, the law of the land, and old commentaries on common law. I've read through at least portions of some of these. They're so full of Scripture, it's amazing. Just You, you see Scripture all over the place. In fact, um, Charles Finney said he got converted to Christ studying for law and seeing all of these references to the Bible in common law. Uh, that's how he got converted. So common law mandates that the Bible be the foundation. Blackstone's commentary on common law was used, and it doesn't have as many references as Koch's and some of the others do. But here's what Blackstone said, and this was used all over America. He said this, God's law is binding over all the globe, in all countries, and at all times. No human laws are of any validity, if contrary to this, and such of, uh, such of them as are valid derive all their force and all their authority immediately or immediately from this original, unquote. So common law is biblical law applied over time. Now, sometimes it wouldn't apply good, <laughs> but it was applied over time. It's their understanding of biblical law. It is not case law disjoined from the Bible. The Bible is essential to the case law that it's being studied. So no wonder Scalia admits that common law is dead. We haven't had the Bible in the courts for, what, decades? It's been a long time. Let me just give you one more example. 
1837, a man had been charged with blasphemy, and he sought to appeal to the Supreme Court of Delaware, claimed that blasphemy should not be a crime. Let's just overturn this, uh, this uh, thing. But the Supreme Court disagreed, stating that the common law provision of the U.S. Constitution makes biblical law the highest law of the land. You can get this on Google Books, by the way. It's a very interesting read. Let me just give you a part of that. Going back to the English roots of common law, the court said, long before Lord Hale declared that Christianity was a part of the laws of England, the court of King's Bench, and he gives the reference there, had gone so far as to declare that in almost all cases, the common law was grounded on the law of God, which it was said was causa causance. And the court cited the 27th chapter of Numbers to show that their judgment on a common law principle in regard to the law of inheritance was founded on God's revelation of that law to Moses, unquote. And you can read the rest of the judgment, and I think you'll see. Biblical law must be the foundation of all common law courts. I think that was the original idea, the original intent. I could give you similar cases from New York and from other states, even... Papers, they're pretty thick papers written by the Congress of the United States in the 1950s and other declarations of presidents that say exactly the same thing that I'm saying here. The common law mandate of the Constitution is a biblical law mandate. And this is why our Constitution dates itself, not like other legal documents. This is the first time. They dated this document in the year of our Lord. I think they were explicitly declaring Jesus to be the Lord of this nation. Now, this means we really don't need an amendment to the Constitution for a definition of marriage. There's a lot of controversy on this. Common law clearly calls sodomy a crime, and marriage is being between one man and one woman. They're just ignoring it. It's clearly in common law. Common law allowed citizens to have the rights to own weapons, to defend themselves. It gave all of the rights listed in the Bill of Rights plus a whole bunch more. That's why uh, Amendments 9 and 10 say, hey, just because we haven't listed all of the rights does not mean we don't continue to uh, possess them. You read the early commentaries on that? They're saying, yeah, we possess all of the rights that are listed in common law. That's all it is. It's it's, it's the rights that God has given uh, to his people. And if you throw out biblical law like so many Christians are today, you have no way of defending against the tyranny of a soul. Our government has become a soul. Its will has replaced God's will. And that's why I can no longer sing God bless America unless I have a mental reservation in my mind, God bless America with thoroughgoing discipline and repentance and reformation and a return to the law of God. Now, that kind of blessing uh, I can pray for, and I don't think God's going to be pleased with anything less. Now, I'm not going to cover in detail all of the deviations listed in your outlines, but let's just quickly go through them. Saul gave a verbal accusation, but nothing in writing. That's point E. He probably didn't want his bad, unjust decision committed to writing, but what does the Scripture call for? Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. That's what the Scripture calls, talks for. Uh, court proceedings must be objective, not arbitrary. Now, America does pretty well on this, maybe too well. Uh, they get bogged down in paperwork and in American courts. But um, there are countries where no review of justice is possible because there's nothing in writing. And every time you tell the story, the story can change a little bit. Um, Anything, including the Patriot Act, that moves our country away from this principle needs to be resisted. Point F. The accused had the right to face his accusers 
and cross-examine them. And I give some scriptures for that. Uh, Saul gave no time for cross-examination. I've already hinted that Child Protection Services, OSHA, can enforce judgments on an anonymous tip. It's pretty hard to cross-examine an anonymous tipper. And in any case, uh, OSHA comes in even before the court case. They've pretty much taken over your premises, so it's too late. Uh, so even though this may not affect you, some of these things, you don't have a business, you think, well, who cares? No, you need to be outraged over this. Point G, the witness had to believe in God since he was required to take an oath before testifying and call down God's judgment upon himself, at least implied, if he committed perjury. And I give you some of the references on that. Now, Doeg was an Edomite. Did you realize that in several, I don't think it was necessarily in all of the American states, uh, I'm pretty sure it wasn't in all of them, I know it was in New York, but in several of the states of the Union, an atheist could not testify in court because they said he can't, he can't call down God's judgment, he doesn't even believe in an afterlife, so how do we know he's telling the truth? <laughs> now whether you agree with that or don't agree with it, it's very interesting. We live in a totally different America. Nowadays, God's commandments are completely taken out of the courtrooms. There have been cases that on appeal were overturned simply because a verse was quoted by the attorney. So that's completely turning this principle upside down. Point H, there could be an appeal to trial by jury. Well, Saul was not about to let that happen, and in some cases, the Patriot Act is not about to let that happen. Point I, the law mandated that the judge treat the accused as innocent until proven guilty. Now, right from the start, Saul treats him as being guilty of treason. Now, we still have this protection in most regular courts, but you are guilty until proven innocent when you're hauled off by the IRS or when you're hauled off by OSHA or some of the other agencies out there. So do not... You know, our nation is a nation that's run against, uh, away from God. We should not expect our nation to be blessed by God without repentance of these high crimes. Point J, Saul asks his soldiers to kill Ahimelech. When the Bible makes it quite clear, the witness needed to be the first one to cast the stone. So we can't deal with every point here in our limited time, but I think there's enough so you can see this was a kangaroo court and there's enough here to warrant a complete overhaul of our justice system. Now, this is further strengthened when you find under point 19 that Saul totally ignored a brilliant defense. Ahimelech parried every accusation in verses 14 through 15 in such a succinct way. He must have been thinking very quickly on his feet. Let's read that. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house, that I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or too much. Uh, there's one little translational issue there that's different, but it's basically a five-fold defense. And the first point has five points. His first point of proof is, I couldn't have possibly known that David was your enemy. First, because David is your servant. Second, he's loyal. Third, he's the king's son-in-law. Fourth, he's the captain of your bodyguard. Fifth, he's highly respected in your household. What, am I, what else am I supposed to suppose, you know? I thought he was on the king's business. I mean, it's a great defense. Second argument was that his priestly actions toward David were routine. And, and, and you, you look at other translations, you can see it more clearly. But they were routine and this was not the first time that David had inquired of him. 
If it was treason before, uh, was not treason before, why is it treason now? It's a good question. How can Ahimelech be accused of treason when he's doing the same thing that Saul has agreed for him to do? Let David inquire of you. Third, he affirms his loyalty to Saul, calling himself your servant. Hey, you want to know? You're accusing me of not being loyal. Hey, I'll let you know. I'm not going to plead the right to remain silent. I'm loyal to you, okay? Fourth, he was not involved in any way in a plot. Fifth, he and the other priests knew nothing whatsoever about the whole affair. It's a pretty watertight argument. Nothing Doeg said could unseat it. In fact, it confirms what Ahimelech is saying. And yet Saul declares him guilty anyway. Now, I could give a couple of court cases, and uh, Denny uh, could give uh, several court cases where pro-life defenders were not allowed to bring witnesses, videos, and other evidence into their trial. Very, very interesting. Let's deal with points 20 and 21 together. Just uh, read verses 16 through 19. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also was with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. At least they had that much gumption. Say, No, we're not doing it. Uh, you know, you can kill us. We're not doing it. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now where did God authorize the destruction of property of an Israelite? Nowhere. Nowhere in the scripture. Even the property of a criminal could be passed on to his family uh, in, in, in the Bible. Unless there was restitution. But this is not restitution. This is destruction of property. And the same misguided approach can be seen in some police departments that have millions of dollars worth of property that often gets either destroyed or sold for auction rather than returned to its rightful owners. Now, I know one person who was vindicated in court. He had a perfect right to have his weapon. And the police, it took months for him to get that back. There is not the same respect for property that there used to be in our country. And as we saw last week, a nation's view of property is a key evidence of tyranny or liberty. Now, far, far worse than disrespect for property was his disrespect for life. It wasn't just the 85 priests who were killed. He killed every man, woman, and child in the city of Nob as well. It was a massacre. And you might think, well, finally, we've come to a point that does not describe America. You know, this describes the communists out there. They're bad guys. Maybe it describes Rwanda, but surely this does not describe America. Well, unfortunately, uh, it does occur in America, and I don't even need to get into the multiplied millions of people that America has killed in unjust wars. Just look within our borders. America has killed 50 million babies since 1973. 50 million. That is far worse than anything that Saul has done. The blood stains our land, and nothing but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can heal our land. And redeem us. In Deuteronomy 21, God gave a provision for cleansing the land of its defilement from an unsolved murder. And this was just one murder that defiled the land. 
Here's what they said. The city that was near to the murder had to kill a heifer, wash their hands over the heifer, and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And then the text says, An atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. I don't think anybody in America can plead ignorance. They were pleading ignorance. I don't think anybody in America can plead ignorance. And I don't think that there are many government officials who can plead uh, innocence when they have done so little to stop the bloodshed. But the blood of Christ is far more powerful than the blood of a heifer. Praise Jesus. Far more powerful. And I would urge this church to plead the mighty blood of Christ on this land. Thankfully, there are politicians out there who are calling for fasting and prayer and repentance. And our session would really like you guys to be involved in that. If you're physically able to fast, but all of us, to be taking that day seriously and asking God to forgive all of the different things we've outlined the last couple of weeks, plus many, many more that our nation uh, is guilty of. Without grace, these violations of the law will be evidences that God will use against us to destroy us. But, and this is a very big but, but God's promise is, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. May the church of Jesus Christ do exactly that. Amen. Father God, we stand sobered at the degree of evil and rebellion that our nation is guilty of as it stands before your throne. And Father, I pray that you would not pronounce every man, woman, and child in America to be guilty. But for the sake of the founding fathers and for the sake of the remnant that is in this nation, that you would instead pronounce guilty those who are guilty of these high crimes and demeanors and either convert them, in which case Christ bears that curse on their behalf, or take them out, Lord, take them out. Break out the teeth of the young lion. Rescue the victims from the lion's mouth. I pray, O oh God, that you would cause the loins of the enemies to shake for true fear of you to once again come into our nation. Not a half-hearted repentance, not a token repentance, but Father, grant to the Gentiles repentance. Grant that we might once again, in truth and not in hypocrisy, be a nation who trusts in you, a nation who is under you. And we pray, Father, that you would honor and glorify your Son by giving this nation back to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.